Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the three most important federal news stories of the week as selected by two experts in the federal government community. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. I'm your host, Francis Rose. It's Friday, May 6th, 2022. Today, my experts in the federal government community are Larry Allen, the president of Allen Federal Business Partners and author of the Week Ahead newsletter. Larry, welcome. It's great to see you. Francis, thanks very much. It's great to be here. And Ron Marks, president of ZPN Cyber and National Security Strategies, non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security and former special assistant to the Assistant Director of Central Intelligence for Military Affairs. Ron, welcome. Great to see you again, Thanks, my friend. Delighted to be here. We start the countdown now with... Number three. Ron Marks, your third most important federal news story of the week. CISA, FBI, the National Security Agency, and international partners warn organizations of top routinely exploited cybersecurity vulnerabilities is the reason this is on your countdown list the vulnerabilities themselves the fact that these organizations are collaborating together all of those are something else yeah i i really saw it in terms of or saw it out in terms of the cooperation level uh, you know it's been interesting the last few weeks uh Russia was up at the UN, of course, introducing some amendments with regards to how the internet should be handled as in, you know, they'll handle it. Uh, we've pushed back and uh, there were some 60 countries that came to agreement with us recently over, I think within the last week or so, uh, about freedom of the net and how things are to be handled. Uh, this is another interesting part of it where you're seeing, you know, again, some international cooperation in terms of looking at, uh, at cyber vulnerabilities. Uh, you know, clearly you're getting the NSC involved. State has yet to quite step into it because they're just formulating their group. Uh, Jen Easterly, of course, uh, is moving things out of CISA. Uh, and NSA. So it's been an interesting, uh, the beginning of a full courts, uh, full court international press on this, which is why I picked up on it. Uh, the other thing I had picked up on, and that's what I was trying to divine, uh, working my way through it, is where the heck Chris Inglis was in all of this um, as the National Cyber Director. And frankly, what I'm hearing at this point uh, is that he is not necessarily a part of these kinds of policy processes. Uh, that they have him focused a little more on the resource side uh, or uh, or not involved uh, in this kind of thing. Um, other rumors involve, you know, the usual kind of Washington who shot whom in terms of NSC running things, et cetera. So there are a couple of elements of that story that that grabbed my attention. And then that, uh, that really was, uh, from the personal interest one, uh, that was another interesting story that may be coming out of it, whether, whether Chris Inglis and his position as National Cyber Director. Larry, you and I have talked a uh, hundred times, if we've talked once, about the challenges for organizations in the federal government collaborating with each other. Do you see threads of that here? as a potential success story for other organizations to emulate? I do, Francis. I think this is a great opportunity, not only for agencies to work together in the same government, but even on a broader scale, as was pointed out, you have the opportunity to have company, countries working with each other. Uh, anytime you've got that type of cooperation, this seems to be almost be cooperation week, uh, in fact, in the federal government. Uh, it's a good sign to get things done and hopefully be efficient. Ron, the the wither Chris English question, where does that fit in the context of the legislation that established the National Cyber, Cyber Director's Office and the recommendations from the uh, Cyber Solarium Commission? That doesn't sound like what they intended for that person to not 
be present or or to at least be public in these kinds of uh, policy formulations? Now, I, I realize I'm getting old at this point. So after 40 years in this town, um, there are a couple of lessons I've picked up, certainly from dealing with the Hill and the executive branch. Uh, it is clear that certainly there are parts of the executive branch that did not welcome that position. Uh, it was imposed upon it by the Hill uh, and they accepted it. Uh, but, uh, you know, and they were, and they did fund it slightly and it finally got its funding as everything, you know, sort of worked its way through the system, but it's not necessarily being embraced enthusiastically. And that's not atypical of these kinds of positions when they first start off, you know, it is an imposition from Capitol Hill, uh, at least as viewed by the executive who occasionally just forgets what article one of the constitution looks like it's the legislative, not the executive, but, you know, nevertheless, it's been interesting to watch. Uh, and you can begin to sense some of the frustration from people who are involved in the commission at this point uh, as to sort of what's going on here and and why uh, why things are still continuing. I think there'll be, of course, the pushback. It's still early. We're still working on all this. But again, there's a strong set of rumen coming out from the NSC at this point that uh, they're not happy with that position and uh, and they're they're trying to establish their uh, their boundaries. Ron March's third most important federal news story of the week is the collaboration among CISA, FBI, the NSA, and international partners on cyber vulnerabilities. Larry, your choice at number three is from my colleagues at FedScoop, John Hewitt-Jones and Dave Nitschapier. The headline is NITAC hit with further CIOSPU4 bid protest. And they write, Maryland-based Precise Federal Consultings filed a bid protest with the Government Accountability Office over CIO SP4. Now, this came out the day after the GAO had just dismissed other protests against CIO SP4. I thought we were done with it. We're back in this again. Here we go again, I guess, is my takeaway from this, Larry. Francis, that's exactly my point in putting this uh, article in there. Here we go again. On the surface, people might just say, oh, it's another protest. But yes, it's another protest. And it's not unique to CIOSP4, although that's the current uh, one that's in the barrel for protests right now, uh, right along with GSA's Polaris contract. Uh, The fact is we see more and more protests on indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contracts, Francis. My concern with that is that at some point, both government and industry is going, are going to say, hey, are large IDIQ contracts really worth the time to put together? Sure, they're really efficient to buy from and save time and money once they're in place, but there's an increasing cost to putting them in place to begin with. The cost is most obviously for the federal government, but look, it's also for contractors who can easily, easily spend seven figures in bid proposal and capture costs, trying to run after these. At some point, Francis, I can't help but wondering whether or not the last protest is gonna be one that breaks the camel's back and we're going to see a return to wide opening, wide open as needed procurements uh, that frankly don't favor the small businesses, ironically, that do most of the protesting here. Ron, you've worked with companies uh, in this mentor protege on both sides of that idea. And and my colleagues write, CIOSP4 has been hit with multiple bid protests over how mentor protege joint ventures are assessed by acquisition officials. 
what is there a fix for this or is this just something that's so complicated that it's always going to be problematic do you think one of the toughest things to explain to people who want to come into washington is the game and what it takes to win this game and one of the things that has become to the fore especially in the last five years has been the protest game and they'll look at me and say well wait a minute what are they protesting again i said <laughs> well look this is the process and I agree. I, I think what's starting to happen here is if you're so bogging down this contracts process, I mean, we've gone all out of our way. We're going to have FedRAMP. Uh, we've got, you know, the CMMC stuff or we're just going to be scared together. We've got all this sort of kumbaya stuff uh, in terms of getting contracts done, uh, getting the kind of technologies we have through. And yet at the same time, uh, these this sort of these endless challenges, uh, expensive challenges. Uh, are just bogging down this process. I'd like to say that there's some remedy for this. I suspect you'll see something on the Hill at some point. But in the meantime, I don't know what the executive is going to do except except live with it for the immediate period. Larry, how does CIOSP4, how does NITAC in particular get out of this cycle that they're in right now of protest, dismissal, protest, dismissal? Because they've, they've had some challenges with this since basically since the very beginning, it seems like. Right. Well, to be fair to NITAC, Francis, they're in somewhat uncharted waters here. They're really only the second contract be able to come through after the SBA expanded joint venture and teaming capabilities. There's not a lot of hard and fast case law here. Uh, it's developing, but unfortunately for CISP4 and NITAC, they're the ones that are developing a lot of it. So if you're the third or fourth contract come along, after this uh, litany of issues on how you evaluate small business participation and experience, you're gonna be much better off. But in the meantime, it's pretty brutal to get through to be the first one or two contracts. Larry Allen's choice for the third most important federal news story of the week is NITAC hit with further CIOSP4 bid protest. It's at fedscoop.com. Voting open there now, too, for the best bosses in federal IT. You can vote for the best bosses till May 20th, and you can find a link to see the nominees and vote in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The inaugural edition of the FedScoop News Countdown continues with... Number two! And Larry, your choice at number two, you just mentioned the SBA, and your choice at number two pertains to the Small Business Administration's 2023 budget request and how they're trying to pump, promote disadvantaged small businesses, pump them up. What do you see here as the potential benefit and the potential challenge that made you choose this as your second most important news story of the week? Oh, Francis, I really... Uh, focused on the potential challenge of this. The administration's been clear since it came in that it wants to drive enhanced small minority business participation in government contracting. That's great. In the meantime, they keep loading businesses up, which Ron referred to earlier, with new requirements like CMMC, Section 889, whatever it is that you've got, along with sustainability and everything else. Those are all challenges for small businesses. They're challenges for any business, Francis, but particularly acute for smaller firms that don't have the scale to handle each of these new mountains that federal agencies want them to climb. On top of that, I think that we ought to be talking not just about attracting new companies into the market, but how do we keep them here and set them up for success once they've come in the front door? 
And success is spelled in a lot of ways. It's not only the ability to keep doing business and to grow, although certainly everybody wants that. It's also the ability for new companies to understand what the requirements are when they get into the federal market. What type of infrastructure do they have to have internally? So what I'm hoping that the SBA and OMB will do together is set up a program for these new market entries that kind of walks them through, not just the process up to getting their first contract award, but managing them for success over time. That's why I thought this was really newsworthy. Ron, what degree do the companies that you worked with what do, to what degree do they want an organization like OMB or SBA or GSA or somebody else to be involved with them through this whole life cycle? Because they're right now, Larry's right, there's no one-stop shop for a new company to learn everything they need to know. They have to either figure it out from just tons of research or dealing with somebody like you or somebody somebody like Larry or somebody else, but it's it's got to be just a nerve-wracking process. Yeah, I've, I've tried to explain it to them over the years. For those of us who are of a baby boomer generation, we used to play a game called Battleship. Oh, yeah. Uh, where we would poke in one uh, peg on one side, hoping to hit the other. Uh, and that's to some extent what they're doing when they first get into federal contracting. They're not quite sure where they need to go, what they need to do. Anything that would provide some form of guidance and instruction. Um, I think in the government's mind sometimes, uh, SBA or others, everybody does it in some way, shape, or form. They think they're being very clear. They think their message is being very clear, and they think their message is being delivered very clearly. And again, when you've got a multi-step process and all kinds of things in terms of security and sustainability and whatever else, you get all these different organizations involved. And these guys don't know these initials coming in, so they come to guys like me. But, you know, that's nice, and I've enjoyed that. But, you know, to have some place in the government where they can go, get the information, and, and again, absolutely right to be guided through this process. Uh, you know, if we're going to ask these guys to be here, then we need to help them out. Otherwise, you know, frankly, it's one of those kind of empty programs. And we've seen it before in the government where we invite people in for moderate, uh, modern technologies uh, and then turn around and don't fund it beyond the first year. Larry, you suggested that this should go beyond the contract award phase. How far into a company's life cycle of dealing with the government do you think that should last? Well, Francis, I think we ought to be in a place where the companies understand what the infrastructure is that's required, understand not just how to do business, but how to comply with the rules and regulations, make sure that they get the training from the government to do that. And also, I think part of the process is vetting the companies that come in. What we don't want to have happen is stand up a new program, say everybody wants small disadvantaged businesses in the government. That's great. That's a good goal. But remember the last time the government focused on a particular small business group, Francis, it was small, disabled, veteran-owned, service-disabled, veteran-owned businesses. And we got a lot of great new market entries, but we also got a lot of fraud from companies that said, hey, there's a really great expedited way to do business with the government here. Let's set up a storefront. So I think that's got to be part of this process. It's not necessarily a question of how long and months or, or time, but it is something that you're vetting the companies so that they understand what they're getting into and the government can then rely in turn on the services and solutions they offer more than they might otherwise with the new market entry. 
Larry Allen's choice as the second most important federal news story of the week is uh, the Small Business Administration looking to promote disadvantaged businesses in their 2023 budget request. Ron Marks, your choice at number two this week is the General Services Administration studying facial recognition technology. It seems to me to be kind of a marriage of we, we had the IRS that looked at facial recognition from an outside vendor. Then they wound up adopting GSA's login.gov. And now it looks like GSA is kind of taking the next evolution here. Is that what you see or is there more to it than that? Well, I think I, the reason I had picked that story is, is a good example of when you get the government going out into the private market and adapting, you know, cutting edge technologies or relatively new technologies. And the challenge on those things all is, you know, will these things work as well as we need them to work? I mean, the IRS thing has been a problem, to say the least. Um, you know, and are we, you know, can we adapt these things to old technologies? I mean, I, I've, you know, been in this town now long enough to term legacy system is just, just rings every time. You know, will these things retrofit? Uh, you know, what thought was given in this process to doing all this? And again, it just goes to this idea that we, you know, we, we've made a pledge to look over all the government in terms of cyber purchases and IT purchases. And, you know, again, where does this fit in the process? Oh, we want to do something new. Okay, good. Uh, is this going to work? What are we going to do? How are we going to do it? And just doing something new is not enough. So I'm, again, concerned. And I think this is another point where, you know, again, you get down the road on this, starts getting expensive, uh, doesn't quite work. Uh, it gets expensive for those people who are trying to implement it. Uh, because no, no contractor wants to say no once they've got it. So I, I just sort of see it as another example of not necessarily badly thought out, but again, a desire to do A uh, without necessarily understanding that B, C, or D, which is not as positive, can happen. Larry, what do you see here as far as the involvement of GSA, as far as with the technology that's involved here, or any of that? Francis, not a surprise to me that GSA would take the lead here. Uh, this comes almost certainly from Robin Carnahan, the administrator of GSA. Her background is supporting things that the Technology Transformation Service inside her agency does. She's very supportive of what TTS uh, will do and, and in the innovation she believes they can provide. So I think this is very consistent with what I'd expect the administrator to key on. And I think they'll get a lot of support for this initiative because of that. They're getting uptake, aren't they, Larry, for login.gov? Agencies are starting to use it more and more extensively. It's not just the IRS. Uh, they are starting to use it, Francis. And GSA is working on a whole host of other interfaces, too. Not just things where they're a landing page, but interfaces where you can actually do something once you get there without having to go to another site. Uh, again, a lot of this is coming from TTS. Uh, and they're going to get all the support and funding the administrator can provide them since that's her home stomping ground. Ron Marks's second most important federal news story of the week is the General Services Administration studying facial recognition technology. We are up to on this week's inaugural FedScoop News Countdown. Number one. And Ron Marks, your choice for the most important federal news story of the week, intelligence from the United States helping the Ukrainians shoot down a Russian plane. Why is this a big deal beyond what's happening on the ground in Ukraine? Why is that a big deal for the United States government, Ron? This, this has been unprecedented in terms of the amount of cooperation going on between the intelligence community 
uh, and Ukraine. It's been phenomenal stuff. And I've been really intrigued by the fact that it has been accepted so well within the community. Um, you know, my indicator on this always is if people don't like what's going on, uh, you see uh, immediate uh, leaks in the press. Uh, so far, the dog has not barked. Uh, so they're very accepting of it. The question that I've had in all of this is that we've been so open and so free with Ukraine on, on this information. How do we pull back? Uh, there will be others at this point, certainly Japan, Korea, and others over the years who've asked for greater sharing. Uh, we've said no, we've pushed them off. We have the basic, you know, the five eyes, which is Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, and, and UK, and us, who we've had a level of sharing with, NATO, whom we've had a level of sharing with. Uh, but this really goes beyond that. So we've, we've put a big stake out there uh, now. And, you know, the question is going to be coming down the road when another country comes to us uh, and says, look, we need your help on the same level that you had with Ukraine. This worked very well. You know, are we going to be able to do that? And I think it's going to be it's going to be an unpleasant surprise for those asking in the future, because this is because of the dominance of this in terms of being an issue of American foreign policy. We're not going to go, I think, as far again, uh, but it's going to be a tough one to start denying people once we've done this. More cooperation and collaboration in this story. Larry, what do you see here? Well, I think, uh, you know, Ron certainly knows the specifics of the intel world, so I won't step on that. But, you know, from a general standpoint, cooperation, collaboration, very good thing. Uh, I think to his point, government acquisition, one of the things I would use to, to point out is, you know, you get a lot of people who want to share things in government acquisition, uh, but you get some resistance and classic examples that between the federal government and the state governments. State government doesn't always want the federal government's help uh, in this. Uh, and yet there are a lot of ways that state governments have an advantage over the federal government. So from that perspective, collaboration and cooperation uh, can be very positive. Uh, you just have to control who has access to what uh, it is you're sharing. Ron Marks's choice is the most important federal news story of the week is United States intelligence helping Ukraine uh, as as far as shooting down a Russian plane. Larry, your choice at number one this week, a shameless plug, uh, a hearing that the Senate Armed Services Committee held recently, you talked about one of the witnesses in the material that you sent me. Ellen Lord was one of the witnesses. David Berteau was the other witness, the president of the Professional Services Council. He was on the show yesterday talking about his testimony. The main thrust of this hearing, and I confess to David, I read through all 93 pages of the transcript of this. I didn't watch the video, but the overarching theme was the Pentagon has acquisition tools at its disposal that it's not taking full advantage of. Why is that a problem? And what do you think fixes that, Larry? Well, Francis, I think it's a problem because it means that acquisition doesn't move as fast as it should. And we're talking about a time of increased international tension. We're talking about a time when we've been sharing a lot of our arms uh, with Ukraine. Uh, we'd like to be able to replenish those quickly. There are other cutting edge services we need, particularly in the area of cyber. You don't want those acquisitions to be strung out over time. You wanna be able to get something flexible in place and get it in place quickly. The great irony is that the main point of the hearing is that a lot of those capabilities for rapid acquisition exist. Yet the issue I think Francis is it's a culture of caution 
And to be fair, it's not just inside DOD, but it is definitely true inside DOD, where you have a culture of caution. People don't really get praised for doing something innovative. Uh, they certainly get punished or perceive that they will get punished if they take a risk that doesn't pan out. So what are we left with? We're left with contracting officers and other acquisition officials that use the tried and true traditional acquisition methods. There are some pockets of innovation to be sure, but overall we don't have a DOD that's moving as quickly as it should to make sure it's got the tools at its disposal to meet its national security mission. Ron, uh, Dave Berteau told a story at this hearing about talking to a, a contracting officer in the Pentagon and talking about these tools, in, including uh, other transaction authorities and some of the other ones that we've talked about in this community for years now. And this CEO said, well, I don't use those tools because I want to make sure that I'm going by the, and I'm paraphrasing, but I'm going by the letter of the FAR and I'm not making a mistake that I could get in trouble for. Now, that's exactly the opposite of what every acquisition leader that is in the Pentagon today, that was in the last administration, was in the administration before that, and so on and so on, has said about what they hope for and what they expect from their CEOs. What changes that worldview, in your opinion, if anything? I, I think it's hard. I, you know, I saw the OTA stuff come in and I thought, okay, fine, here's an opportunity to do something. And CIA had that capability for years underneath the DCIA of, of doing sort of special quick acquisitions. You know, they're trapped. I mean, if I'm a, if I'm a CO at this point, uh, I'm not only trapped by the FAR. Uh, you know, when, when your life story is tied up with something called the valley of death uh, in terms of yeah. dealing with budget, uh, when you can get the budgets through, how long you're going to be in that position, what kind of commitments you're going to have to make, your evaluation on the success of those things. Um, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, it lends itself to, to put it to politely, conservatism uh, in terms of your approach. You don't want to be wrong. Uh, add to that a budget uh, that is that has gone in dribs and drabs and then quick acquisitions because of delays and all the rest of it. Uh, those guys are cautious. They should be cautious. But I really don't see a way out of that for at least for the immediate period, except it's sort of a war of attrition. Um, you know, you sort of keep pounding at it and try to get younger people perhaps in or better rules. But to be honest with you, this is a long slog. And, and I think we're just going to have to sort of continue to continue to sort of deal with it as we as we can and hopefully make little improvements along the line. Larry, you're nodding your head while Ron was talking. What did you what did he say that you that resonated with you? Well, I think, Francis, some of it is we're going to need some new blood in the acquisition workforce. Uh, we've got a shortage of the acquisition workforce across government. DOD is not immune from that. If you bring in new people who aren't afraid to try new things, and maybe they come in from with a different perspective in the private sector where they've tried things and they've worked out, you get that new mentality in there. I think it's also going to take support. You talked, Francis, about support from senior level policy people for innovation, which is great, and it's been there. But you're going to need that mid-level GS-14, GS-15, mid-level manager support for the acquisition workforce who know that it's okay to take a risk. And if they mess up, it's going to be the person sitting down the hall from them that has their back. They're not going to have to rely on somebody two quarters up and two quarters over uh, who they may see once a year. 
So it's really going to take the, the middle level management, ensuring that the acquisition professionals know that it's okay to try something new. Larry Allen's choice as the most important federal news story of the week is the Pentagon still not using rapid acquisition authorities to their full potential. And you can find links to more about all these stories in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. Gentlemen, thank you. We did it. The first edition of the revitalized FedScoop News Countdown is in the books, and I thank you very much for joining me. Congratulations, and thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, Francis, it's great to, to do this, and uh, appreciate the opportunity. Thank you very much, gentlemen. And uh, the FedScoop News Countdown returns next Friday. The Daily Scoop podcast is back on Monday with the Chief Information Officer of the Department of Veterans Affairs, Kurt Del Bene, is my guest on Monday's Daily Scoop podcast. Thanks for listening today. I'll talk to you on Monday. Have a great weekend.